0: 10 years old, and uh, we started uh, just getting used to the area a little bit more and enjoying northern Virginia. I've been into D.C. a few times because we've always visited uh, our my in-laws, uh, Ken and Jan, who are with us today, so kind of knew my way to go in to see the monuments and different things, but that next summer, we decided we'd go over to Rehoboth Beach, Maryland and visit Jane's grandparents. And... Uh, We made that trip several times. You got to go around all the Beltway, and then you hit Highway 50, and you go east. Many of you have done that trip, go back over through into Delaware. And it just seemed to me like that was a waste of time. Why spend all your time going around that Beltway? Why don't you just go right through D.C.? That's a straight shot. And it seemed to make sense. And so I looked at a map briefly, real briefly. And saw that I could go down the end of 66, and I could pick up 110, go past Arlington Cemetery and Pentagon, pick up 395, and it'd shoot me right across the bottom part of, kind of say hi to the monuments as you went by and everything. And then eventually over there, some way you'd connect with the beltway on the other side. That's what I thought. (laughs) So we jumped in the car, got all our stuff ready for vacation. We headed out. And went down 66, got to the end, got on 110, got past Arlington Cemetery, Pentagon, picked up 395, and I thought, this is a little tricky, but we did it. You know, I'm kind of congratulating myself, patting myself on the back. We're zipping across there in 395, get to the other side, and I'm watching for these signs that would say how you get to 495 or some way to get to the beltway on the east side of town. There were no signs like that. No signs. And I was starting to panic. Said, oh, no, what do I do? You know, the interstate's ending here. And so I found an exit, I took it, thought I'll figure out when I get to the bottom of this ramp what I'm supposed to do. The bottom of that ramp was southeast D.C., and I'd heard about southeast D.C., I'd never been there before, didn't want to be there again, (laughs) Uh, and I don't think I've ever gone back there actually, but we get into D.C., it's the middle of the day, and it's, Not really a scary time, but I'm thinking of the news reports. They've been hammering us with these news reports that Washington, D.C. is the murder capital of the United States. Over 400 murders occur a year. That's more than one a day. That's what the thought's going through my mind. And I'm now in southeast where most of those murders seem to take place with my family, my 2-year-old, my 10-year-old, my wife. And I'm just praying, Lord, get us back out of here somehow. We've got to find our way to Delaware today. And we're driving around after a couple turns on one-way street. So I didn't even know how to get back to the ramp. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm praying, Lord, and he sent us an angel, two angels, really. They, well, they weren't angels. They were telephone repairmen. But they were angels to me because I pulled off to the seven legs to them, and I said, how do we get out of here? We want to go to Delaware today. And they gave me very clear, concise directions how to get back out of southeast and onto the east side of town where I could pick up 50 and make my way to Delaware. Last week, we left the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God has given them new commands. He's given them a new covenant. We talked about that. talked about uh, some of the interplay there going on there between the people and God. And, and they, they weren't totally faithful, were they? Well, now they've got things in the right path. And God says, okay, we're ready to move on from here. And so they're going to leave Mount Sinai. Numbers 10 tells us about that. They're going to proceed on up through the wilderness and find their way north to what we call Israel today. They called it the land of Canaan then. Now, it's not a great distance from Egypt to Israel, only about 300 miles. If we got in our car, we could make that in half a day. But they didn't have a car. They didn't have a motorcycle. They didn't even have a bicycle. They were on foot. And besides that, there were a lot of them, a lot of them. And they didn't take a straight path. It kind of meandered their way around wherever God led them. And over a period of months, they made it. Could you imagine... How many people Moses had with him? About 2 million, between 1 and 3 million. That's like taking all of the people who live in D.C. on vacation with you. Wouldn't that be fun? Let's all go together. And so you can imagine in this group of people, there is this huge amount of complaining and arguing and fighting, and people are just satisfied, people saying, well, what's next? You know, This is awful. Will we ever get there? If you've ever heard that before, are we there yet? imagine how many times Moses heard it and they're complaining complaining there's no water so God has to give them water out in the middle of this desert they complain there's no food so God brings manna and he sends this this wafer like thing that comes down like dew on the ground and they go out and they collect it every day but it's only enough for that day next day you got to go back and collect some more And finally then they complain, all we get to eat is this manna stuff. We're sick of manna. We've prepared it every way possible. Our wives have run out of recipes for this. What can we do? Well, Can we have some meat? And God says, okay, I'll give you meat. (laughs) I'll give you some quail. Quail's good. But when God sends it, he sends it so deep, it's like 20 to 30 inches deep. Everywhere they could see, just pile in. All these quail come in from the, the coastline, and they just hammer them, you know, bury them. And, quail. and God does that for the next 30 days until they're just sick of it. And they're like saying, we're tired of this. We don't want any more of this. God says, I want you to learn something here. Trust me day by day for your provision. And so all this arguing is going on. Then Aaron's, uh, Aaron is Moses' brother and his sister Miriam. They say, well, why is God only speaking through Moses? And they get all hot about this, you know. Why doesn't he share that with us? Well, we need the authority too. And so he has to deal with them. Just one after another. Finally, in Numbers 13, where we want to go today, we discover that they make it to the east side of the Jordan, looking over the river into Canaan, this land of Canaan that God had promised Abraham some 650 years before. And now they're back. Finally, they're back. After all the trials, after all the slavery in Egypt, after all that God has done for them, he brings them back. And God says, this is what I brought you to. This is what I want you to do. Send some men in to spy out the land and then get ready to go in and take possession of this land I've given you. Let's pick it up in Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Skip down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. And whether the people who live uh, who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And then Moses tells us it was the season for the first ripe grapes. You read this this week. You found out they found some clusters of grapes that were so large, they had to strap them onto a pole, and two guys had to carry them with this pole on their shoulders. That's a cluster of grapes, mind you. It's bigger than I've ever seen. Maybe the grapes are as big as grapefruits. I don't know. This is quite a place. So they went up and explored the land. Skip down to verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community of Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. You know, first impression. Wow. Look at what they saw. Look at what they brought back. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But... This is another one of those places where but means a lot. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Enoch there. Enoch is a race of giants, big people, strong people. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, he's one of these 12 spies, silenced the people before Moses, and he said, We should go up. (laughs) We should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. This is a pep talk, folks. This is the cheerleader. But, another but, the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Was that true? All the people? No, some of them. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. A bad report is given. So in spite of the confidence of Joshua and Caleb, these two spies who said, yes, let's go up, let's take the land, let's do what God says, the people refused to take possession of the promised land. Numbers 14 goes on and it tells us that very night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud to God. They cried all night long God, why did you bring us to this? Look what's going to happen to us. We're going to be destroyed. If we go across the Jordan, we'll be dead. And they were terrified at the news the spies brought them. All they could imagine was they're going to die when they crossed the Jordan. Now, we might excuse them when we remember that they're going to have to go in and fight for it. God is just not going to lay the people down like cordwood and say, as soon as you advance, they just flatten out, you know, and you just go in and take possession of everything or they'll all run away. No, he said, you're going to have to fight for it, but I will be with you, I will protect you, I will provide for you, and I will strengthen you, and you will have success, you will have victory. But their response was fear. Fear, not faith. that's incredible to think that the Israelites refused to go up into the promised land to possess it. This had been a long time brewing. God had had rescued his people from slavery and was taking them up to this promised land. He had promised many years before. There were these visions, this this idea of, of God's blessing. And they were going to go inherit this land he had promised them generations before. And yet they balked. They balked. They said no. They rebelled against what God wanted them to do. I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you ever balked to God? Has God ever wanted to do something in your life? You know, he wants you to move on to something and do something and and, uh, maybe try something new, and you balked? Maybe it's simple simple like, you know, you really should speak to that person by Jesus sometime. All you got to do is bring him up. All you got to do is talk with him. And we dig our heels in and say, man, I don't think I could do that. We get all quiet. We get all shy for some reason, embarrassed. Or maybe God wants you to to try something new, some new ministry. And you're thinking, I don't like those kind of people. I don't want to go minister to them. They smell funny. They look funny. They act funny. And so you refuse. You balk at the direction of God, the call of God. Maybe he wants to move you to the other side of town. Maybe he wants to move you to another state. Maybe he wants you to try a new job. Maybe any number of things. But God is calling us to do certain things, each of us individually, and sometimes we get stiff-necked. That's what they call the Israelites. That's that, back up, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop right here. I'm not going any farther. That's balking, and that's what the Israelites are doing here at the Jordan Bank. Last month, Christian and I had the opportunity on September 11th to go into D.C. with a couple of friends. And talk with people about Jesus. Now, I have to confess to you, I've never done anything quite the same as that. I've done something similar a couple times, but this was new. This was the day, September 11th, of course, when they were uh, uh, celebrating or honoring what had happened here. Uh, but there was this march, supposed to be a Muslim march it' was supposed to be a march against fear, and they were expecting maybe a million people would show up to march in this thing. It ended up that it was it was a bust it didn 't happen really. But we went down there anticipating there may be at least several thousand, maybe a hundred thousand Muslims there that we could talk to about Jesus. We could enter into conversations with them, and so we had backpacks full of literature that we were going to pass out and things that would would some of even in Arabic so that we could start these conversations. Meanwhile, the motorcyclists, the bikers across America had found out this march that was going to occur on 9-11. They didn't like that. They said, we're going to have kind of a counter-march, but we're going to do a march. We're just going to ride in. We're going to tour around D.C. We'll follow a certain path and so on. We'll show our presence that that we are supporting our troops, that we're supporting those who gave their lives, and that we are remembering 9-11 the way it should be. So they were very peacefully assembling, but Different, And we thought, we'll get to talk to them, too. If the Muslims don't show up, the bikers will. Well, only about 200 people showed up for the first March, but about 800,000 bikers showed up on D.C. And so we show up that morning from VRE, and we're going to talk to people about Jesus as we can. The night before, I'm wondering, is this a good thing? Should I be doing this? Because some of that little fear was kicking in. The next day, even going on the train, It was still there, you know. What is this going to be like? What does this look like? This is pretty intimidating. I'm I'm a little bit scared about this. And it could have backed out of it, but I'm so glad I didn't because God was in that moment. God was in that day. And some amazing conversations happened with people that day. And we passed out thousands of these, these little tracts and different things so that even if we didn't get to have the full conversation, they had something to read, something to think about. Maybe a seed was planted in their life. Like these Israelites, we need to ask this question. Do we respond to God's leading with faith or with fear? Will we live by fear or by faith? You know, is your life something that is characterized by faith in God or characterized by that fear that somehow holds you in its grip and shackles you and keeps you from living for God the way that you should? That's the question of today. And I think from these Israelites we can learn two powerful lessons. First of all, this, that faith can take us from complaining and control, this control of our lives, to contentment. Faith is the difference. You see, if you live in fear then you think you're responsible for yourself. If you live in fear, you want to be in charge of your own life. You want to be in control of your own life. And so you complain about things because they don't come out the way you wanted to. You don't like the results. You don't like the consequences. You don't like how the other people are treating you or what God has done for you. And when you're in charge and you're fearful, then all kinds of problems have set into your life. But when we learn to stop feeling like we have to be in control... And when we learn to be content with our circumstances, good or bad, it changes everything. And the only way to get there is through faith, not through fear. There's a big difference in how you approach life and the results you get out of that. When you approach with faith, you say, God, you're leading. You're in charge. You are in control of my life. You are providing for me. And so if I don't get exactly what I wanted, I'm not going to complain because it was your decision. And I'm satisfied with your decision. If my circumstances are great, good. if my circumstances are pretty bad right now, that's okay too because you're in that and I trust you. that You're going to get me through this. You're going to help me and I'm going to understand more. Maybe I'll learn something in the process. I'll grow stronger and my faith makes me hang in there. You see the difference? That faith will take you from this life of complaining or control issues to contentment. Where are you now? Where are you now with your circumstances? Where are you now with, with the, the life you have, good or bad, blessings or curses? Are you content? I just want to encourage you this morning, keep your eyes on God and faith. Don't live by fear. Live by faith. The second thing we can learn from the Israelites is this. Faith will take us from the wilderness to the way capital W, capital A, capital Y, the way, the way that God has, the path that God has. And if you live by fear, you're going to end up wandering in a wilderness. You're going to end up with all kinds of issues in your life. There's going to be confusion. You're not going to know with clarity what to do in your life. You're not going to know the direction to go. And there's going to be this aimlessness of your life. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just doing the best I can today. Is that good enough for you? That's not good enough for me. I don't think that's good enough for any of us because God wants us to have clear direction. God wants us to have aim and a purpose in our lives. But when we live in fear, all you can do is expect a lot more wilderness. And these people who refused God at the Jordan River were turned back, they were sent back into the wilderness, and for 40 years they had to live there. A horrible place to live until all of them died. All of the adults died. You read that? The whole generation, 20 years and older, died in the wilderness. So that 40 years later, finally God brought them back to the promised land and they went in and they took possession of it. But with a new generation of people that had learned faith instead of fear. The Israelites' fear caused them to panic. And what happened is they got even more confused. Their fear caused them to doubt God's guidance, God's provision, God's protection. And they started focusing on the obstacles rather than on God. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you're in a wilderness experience, you need to lift your eyes up. You need to lift your eyes up to God, not at your circumstances, not at the things you're going through, not at the challenges, not at the the illness, not at the job problems, not at the money problems, not at the family problems. God wants you to raise your eyes up to him. Not live by fear, but live by faith. And faith in God will take you out of confusion and aimlessness and bring Jesus into your life. He is the way, isn't he? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. And faith in Jesus gives us clarity. Faith in Jesus gives us identity. Faith in Jesus gives us us meaning. Faith in Jesus gives us purpose and direction in our life. Because he puts a call on your life, and God then can use your life when you respond in faith and confidence and trust. My wife, Jane, is a substitute teacher for Manassas City Schools. She's currently teaching a second-grade class for a teacher that had a baby. She's on 10 weeks of maternity leave. So Jane's about halfway through those 10 weeks with these little second-graders, and she's just, just, even though it's a lot of work, she's enjoyed these kids. She's got a really good group of kids. About a week and a half ago, they worked on this map project, and so they made this flip chart, and on each page of this flip chart was a different thing. They were kind of branching out from, here I am in my house with my family, next page, here's my town I live in, next page, here's the state I live in, next page, here's the nation I live in, next page, here's the world. And so they could begin to understand as a second grader that difference, you know, and That's hard for a child to learn, but it was a good way for them to picture that. So they were so excited about that flip chart and what they were developing and coloring in and eventually putting themselves right there with their family. Well, the weekend came, and they hadn't yet got to the point where they are putting themselves on the map. And Monday, Jane got this email from a mother. She says, my son is so upset. He got sick over the weekend. He can't come to school today. And poor little Tucker is crying his eyes out because he wanted to be there at school today so he could put himself on the map. <laughs> and Jesus, you know, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, you know. <laughs> but it was to him. And I think it's a big deal to all of us because we need to know where we fit. I think that's what Tucker was saying. He was saying, I want to know where I am. I want to know who I am. I want to know who I'm with. And I want to see how I fit into my town and my nation and my world. I want to know where I fit. And it's the same need, the same cry that is in each one of our hearts because we want to know who we are. We want to know that our lives are special, that our lives can make a difference, and that God has something unique and special for you or me. Greatest way you can make a difference in life. The greatest way you can live is to live by faith in God. Just to say to God, I'm not in charge of this anymore. That, that's, that's scary. That's fearful. I'm going to put my trust in you because you made me. You know me best. You know what my life should be about. And I'm going to trust you. A decision really has to be made there of humility, a decision of, of repentance, the Bible calls it, where you're ready to just make a complete turnaround, and you're ready to just turn it over to God and say, God, you're in charge now. God, you put the message on my life. You put the purpose on my life. You give me my identity. You give me this sense of of meaning. And you're in charge from here on out. That's the life of faith, not the life of fear. And I want to encourage you this morning to grab onto that life of faith. If you're fearful, if you're anxious, if you're upset, the only way to live is that life of faith. I'll show you a picture of a a lady named Awal Dushan. Awal Dushan was one of our students that came to the Barefoot Doctors School in Chiang Mai, Thailand, three years ago. It was uh, January of 2010. January 2010, she was one of 26 people that were brought over from Burma. Burma is the worst medical provision country in the world. I just saw the report on that from uh, the World Health Report. They said It is the worst. The people are taking care of the worst of anywhere in the world. And our mission that we support has these barefoot doctors that they train in medical ways so that they can go back into their villages or to new villages, and they can treat them medically, but as they go to help them with this core need of of just good health, of getting, you know, they get sick with malaria and they die. But there's a simple medicine they could take and they would live. But they don't know that, they don't have it. But these, these barefoot doctors provide that. So for three years, we bring them in, and they study for about three months, January, February, March, then they go back home for the rest of the year, then they come another time and another time. And the third year, in March of 2012, she and 25 other people graduated as a barefoot doctor, and she went back home again to serve. She lives on the border of China and Tibet. She lives so remotely that there are no roads where she lives, just paths through the woods, through the jungles. And when she came to the school the first time, it took her two weeks to get to where there was a road. And then the road took her into Patao and she got an airport, an airport there, and she flew down to Chiang Mai Thailand with the other group. This is where this lady lived. Three weeks ago she died. And when I got news of that, I thought, this is crazy, you know. She had less than 18 months to serve as a barefoot doctor. She got all the training. She was a mother, she was a grandmother, she had all these these lives that were dependent on her. And when she would come to the school, she would be gone for almost five months because of the walk, getting out, then going to school, and then the walk back home again. So she's gone for almost five months, three years in a row, with all these other responsibilities that she had in her family and everything. But she felt this call of God on her life that said, you can make a bigger difference. You can do something for me if you will train as a barefoot doctor. Little did she know that she would only get to do that for 16, 17 months. She didn't care about that. All she cared was the life of faith. The life that God is calling me, God wants me to do this, and I will follow God to the ends of the world. <laughs> I will go wherever God sends me. I will do whatever God wants me to do. And she lived by faith. And I want to honor her today and every person like her who hears the call of God and responds by faith. If we have been living a life of fear, We need to begin living a life of faith today. If you are fearful, if you are scared, if you are on your own, today is a day you can begin that life with Jesus Christ. You can put your confidence in Him. If there is something in your life that needs to change, if there is something that God wants you to do, then you need to reach out in faith to Him rather than cower back in fear, like, I can't do that. I've never done that before. I don't want to go be with those people. I don't want to do that. I'll just stay in my comfortable little world and and not rock the boat. God is calling you. God is commanding you so that you can go out and be used of God. Is there somebody he wants you to talk to? Is there somewhere he wants you to go? Have you been shackled by your fears and now it's to time to break those shackles and go out and reach out in faith to God. If you have lived that way, today is the day for you to step out in faith. It's time for you to put your confidence in God, who always makes good on his promises. This morning, brothers and sisters, friends, I want you to know that this is what we need to learn from those Israelites who balked who so deeply disappointed God that day that they cowered in fear and they died in the wilderness. Don't make the same mistake they did. Trust God. Trust God and step out into the future with him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the uh, demonstration of people good and bad and the lessons we learn, the things we can learn from you. I pray for the people here today, Lord, who are living in fear who are anxious about tomorrow, who are worried that they won't have the resources, they won't have the ability to fix things, and things don't look good. I pray for those people who are scared to share their faith. I pray for people who would not speak up about Jesus if their life depended on it. I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who won't even talk to their family about you or take a stand for you. I pray that we would stop living in fear and that we would walk by faith, that we would live by faith, that we would hear this call that you put on each of our lives to serve you in ways unimaginable to us, impossible to us, but not impossible to you. I pray for my brother and sister from Ghana today that are with us, who are doing a mighty work for you. I thank you for them. I thank you for their lives of devotion, for their bravery, their courage. I thank you for Prosper and Victoria that are here right in our midst from Ghana and for their desire to go back one day and to do some great things for you there. But I pray for each of us where we are right now, that we would have courage, that we would have faith, that we would have strength that comes from your Holy Spirit and that you would use us in a mighty way. Help us to lift our eyes from all those things that are obstacles, those things that are challenges, those things that are problematic to us. And look at you. Look at Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the